Hebrews chapter 2 today, verses 5 through 9. I'll read those for us just in a moment if you want to look there. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. It's not to angels that he subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place someone has testified, what is man that you're mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 5, again, it is not angels that he has subjected the world. It is not two angels that he subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. In chapter 1, our author was comparing the difference between the relationships between God and his son and God and his angels. But with the last verse of chapter 1, there's a shift in focus to the relationship between humans and angels and humans and God's son. Angels serve human beings, but humanity and all of the rest of the world to come will be subjected to God's son. The phrase world to come is an interesting one. The Greek word is not the one usually translated world, which appears 10 times more often than this one. The word we have here is related to the word house and might be translated the inhabitable world. The world to come is peopled. It is, as Audio Adrenaline sang a few years ago, a big, big house with lots and lots of room. And the head of the household is no angel, but the Son of God himself. With verse 6, our author introduces yet another quote from the Old Testament. We are 21 verses into this letter, and this is already the eighth scripture quotation. Our author loved the Bible. His understanding of God and the work he is doing in our lives and in our world flowed right out of the pages of the Old Testament. If you don't ever read the Old Testament, you are um, doing yourself a great disservice. He doesn't identify the source of this quote, which is from Psalm chapter 8. And that seems a little odd. And the way he phrases his introduction somewhere, someone has said. Some scholars read Hebrews and claim that our author didn't really know the Old Testament even with all those scripture quotations, that he was working from a list of Old Testament quotations that he had in his possession. But I don't believe that, and I don't believe it for two reasons. Uh, One is, frequently when he quotes a verse or a passage, he demonstrates a familiarity with the context from which that quote came. That wouldn't be the case if he were just working from a list of verses. But it's not just that. This is not the only time our author fails to mention 
the reference for his biblical quote, and the omissions seem to be intentional. It appears that he doesn't want to place emphasis on the earthly writer, but on the heavenly one who inspired him. He wants us to see the Bible as he sees the Bible, as God's word to humanity. Now, verse 6, there's a place where someone's testified, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little, or that could be translated, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. When our, our author read about man in Psalm 8, he didn't see humanity in the abstract. He didn't see just any individual man there, nor did he see every man. He saw the representative man, the first of the new creation, the one Paul called the second Adam, the one who sometimes referred to himself as the son of man. When he looked at Psalm 8, he saw Jesus. Jesus was the one made a little lower, or for a little while lower, than the angels. Now, what does our author mean? What does he have in mind? He's thinking of Bethlehem, of the incarnation, of the mystery and miracle of the virgin's womb, of infinity squeezed into space, of eternity compressed into time. It's a wonder that the fabric of space and time wasn't ripped to shreds. It's a marvel and a mystery into which angels themselves long to look. The omnipotent one is made a little child and brought low. The fingers, Psalm 8, that once shaped the heavens cannot now reach around the mother's thumb. And if that wasn't enough, the one who emptied himself and made, was made in the likeness of man even took the form of a servant and then went further still and humbled himself and became obedient unto death. But the story doesn't end there. The one who was made a little lower than the angels is now exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The head that was once crowned with thorns is crowned with glory now. Here's a great truth that we see in Jesus and that we find repeated in our own lives. The one who humbles himself is exalted. The one who bows before God is lifted up. The one who loses everything, even his own life for Christ's sake, finds everything, even his own life. And the dance that we call a relationship with God, God always leads. And of all the dance moves available to him, the one he likes best is the dip. You know the dip? We fall in order to be raised. We're made lower in order to be lifted higher. And the great dance instructor who teaches us this move is none other than the king of glory himself. He was made a little lower than the angels, but God crowned him with glory and put everything under his feet. Still verse 8. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, you'll remember that humanity was originally given dominion over creation, over animals and birds and fish, but in man's subsequent rebellion and alienation from God, that dominion over creation was largely lost. But in Christ, it's restored. 
Mankind has resumed its place as Lord over creation, but it's done so through the representative man, the Son of Man, who is also the Son of God. Now, we can read this and slide right over it without thinking about what it implies. According to the author of Hebrews, and he's not the only biblical writer to say this sort of thing, God has put everything under Jesus. That is, God has subjected everything to his rule. As if to make sure that we don't miss the point, our author repeats it and says, God left nothing that is not subject to him. The word the NIV translates as subject at the end of this verse is not the one usually translated that way. This word only appears in the New Testament three times. Once here in Hebrews, twice in the pastoral epistles, where it is once rendered as disobedient, wild and disobedient is the phrase, and once where it's translated in noun form as rebels. The idea of Christ's sovereign reign is nowhere in Scripture more prominent than it is right here. God has allowed nothing to be disobedient to him. Every rebel has been made subject to him. Do you see what that means for us? It means that the rebel disease and all its cohorts are under the rule of Jesus Christ. It means that the economy is under his rule. It means that your boss is under his rule. The politicians are under his rule. So are circumstances. Your health is under his rule. The rebel forces are cowed. He is in control. The rebel cancer is under his control. The rebel finances, the rebel poverty. Even the great rebel himself is subjected to Christ. In the Christian's complete armor, the Puritan William Grinnell urged Christ's followers to hold fast to their assurance. He then wrote, when God says stay, the devil must stand like a dog by the table while the saints feast on God's comfort. He doesn't dare to snatch even a tidbit, for the master's eye is always upon him. Christ is in control. Now you might be saying to yourself, wait a minute. That's nice rhetoric. Maybe it's even a little eloquent. But outside these doors is a real world where Christians suffer harm and injury and death. They go bankrupt and they're misused and they're unfairly treated. They go to doctors and hear the same bad news everyone else hears. In parts of the world, they're even hunted down for sport. And you tell me that Jesus is in control? If this is all the better he can do, I don't see much reason for signing up. I get where you're coming from. I've sat in silent vigil with parents while they've watched their children take their final breaths. I've stood in the ER beside a mother when the medical staff gave up on CPR and wrote down the time of death. I've seen children robbed of both their parents and left nothing but grief. I've been the boy bereft of his closest friend and confidant, his older brother. My wife has seen her baby sister taken away by a person who was driving too fast and didn't see the children crossing the road until it was too late. I understand. More importantly, our author understands. Look at the end of verse 8. 
Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. We strain our eyes until they throb with the intensity, but we do not see it. Not at present. Not yet. Not yet. So we're left with a choice. We can believe our eyes. That is, we can believe what our eyes do not yet see. Or we can believe what God has said. As for our author, he will believe God. He understands that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. Let me tell you, if you wait to trust the Lord Jesus, the one to whom all things are now subject, until you can see it, you'll never trust him. We do not trust him because the circumstances dictate that it's wise, but because he died for us. And because if we have been and are being converted, his spirit lives within us. Randy Alcorn's written about a friend of his, a fellow writer, Ethel Hare, who had a double mastectomy. And then after the surgery, after two months of recovery and further testing, doctors told her that the cancer was still there and that it had spread. When she told a friend the news, her friend stumbled around and said probably what she, didn't, what she really meant but didn't mean to say. She said, and how do you feel about God now? And, and Ethel Hare wrote this later about that moment. She says, as I sought to explain what has happened in my spirit, it all became clearer to me. God has been preparing me for this moment. He has undergirded me in ways I've never known before. He's made himself increasingly real and precious to me. He's given to me such joy as I've never known before, and I've no need to work at it. It just comes, even amidst the tears. He's taught me that no matter how good my genes are or how well I take care of my diet and myself, he will lead me on whatever journey he chooses and will never leave me for a moment of that journey. God is good, no matter what the diagnosis or the prognosis or the fearfulness of the uncertainty of having neither. The key to knowing God is good is simply knowing him. I love that last line. The key to knowing God is good is simply knowing him. If you try to know that he's good without knowing him, which is what many people facing trouble try to do, you will fail. But to the degree that you know him, to that same degree, you will know that he is good. Not yet can we see all things subjected to Christ. But even now we can believe it. But only as we know God. Only as we grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But some people only grow in the knowledge of what can go wrong. They grow in the knowledge of trouble, resentment, anger, worry, despair, Their eyes are fixed on circumstances, on risk, on failure, on disillusion. And because that's all they can see, they only grow in their knowledge of trouble and not in their knowledge of Christ. If you look at the everything of verse 8, rather than at the Jesus of verse 9, 
Faith will shrink, trouble will grow, and your heart will turn cold. We do not see everything subject to him. Not yet. But, verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There are many people who know that Jesus suffered death and are grateful for the forgiveness that his sacrificial death has brought them. They know that his death has made a difference to their eternal destiny. But there are fewer people who know that Jesus is now crowned with glory and honor and that his life in heaven makes a difference to their earthly destiny. But some do. They don't yet see all things under subjection, but they do see Jesus. Jesus crowned with glory and honor. How important is that sight to our success in this life to which God calls us? But how can we see it? How can we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor? I think the answer is God has to reveal him to us. You remember our recent study in Ephesians? Paul wrote there, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. When the eyes of the heart are enlightened, they see Jesus. When the eyes of the heart are enlightened, they see Jesus crowned with glory and honor, ruling over all things from the throne. If the eyes of your heart are not opened, or I should say, are not at least sometimes opened to that sight, ask God for his help and put yourself in a place where you can receive it. Over the years, I've seen it a hundred times. People say, I've asked, I've asked, I've begged God for help but they have not been in a place where they could receive what he wanted to give them. Ask him, put yourself in a place where you can receive it. Pray Paul's prayer and keep praying it. Ask God to give you the spirit of revelation. Ask him to enlighten the eyes of your heart. Now, two more things. First, look at verse 9 again, because we'll be coming back to this next week and then working through the rest of the chapter. The text says that Jesus is made a little lower, as I mentioned before, for a little while lower than the angels. Then we have the phrase that we've been looking at, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. That phrase is incredibly important, now crowned. But don't let its presence cause you to miss the grammatical flow of the sentence. Jesus was for a little while made lower than the angels so that, and here's the reason he was made lower than the angels, he might taste death for every one. Talk about a purpose-driven life. Jesus was born with a purpose. He fulfilled it, and he died with a purpose. But even though that's true, purpose-driven doesn't capture the whole truth. Say rather that his is a love-led life. Love that led him to the cross. 
Last thing. We're talking about this. I realize that you may not see Jesus crowned. Your eyes may be fixed on the everything of verse 8, on troubles and sorrows and the threats that are causing you to fear. They may have so thoroughly captured your attention that you don't see Jesus at all. But he sees you. Whether you see him or not, he sees you, and that is more important. Like the psalmist in your alarm, you might say, I am cut off from your sight. But it is not so for you, just as it was not so for him. You only think it's so because you don't see him right now. But do what the psalmist did. He cried out and God heard his cry for help and he'll hear yours too. He sees you. The writer Jennifer Rothschild was diagnosed at age 15 with a rare degenerative eye disease that would eventually leave her blind. She tells the story of Susan, a young married woman who lost her sight. And with it, she lost, completely lost her sense of well-being. She fell into depression that lasted for a long time. Her husband didn't know what to do for her. It was, a, it was a very dark time in their lives. So after many months, Susan began to feel more confident. And she decided that she would return to work. So every day her husband, Mark, who was a naval officer, would drive her to work, walk her into her building, up to her office, and then continue on his way to the naval base. And then he'd pick her up on the way home. But their schedules didn't line up, and so that led to a lot of complications. After many months of doing this, Susan worked up the courage to decide to ride the bus. So Mark helped her manage the stairs, learn the bus routes, practice walking the path to the bus stop from home and to the workplace from the bus stop and then back again. And finally the day came when Susan was ready to try it on her own. On Monday she said goodbye to Mark and she boarded the bus and it went off without a hitch. She felt good about herself. On Tuesday it was the same and on Wednesday and on Thursday. But on Friday when she got on the bus, the driver spoke to her. He said, Lady, every morning when I drop you off at your stop, there's some Navy guy standing on the sidewalk watching you. And he watches you walk up the steps, take the door handle. It's like he never lets his eyes off you until you're in the building. And then he walks away. See, only then did Susan realize she had a protector, that her husband, her lover, was watching her until he was certain she would be all right. And whether we know it or not, whether we can see him or are completely blind to his presence, the lover of our souls watches over us. He is watching you just now. And if you look, you may see him. But even if you don't, he sees you. Now let's pray. It is not for nothing that Hagar called you the God who sees. You see us inside and out. You see the fears that course through us. You see the gifts that you've given us. 
and you are not afraid. But Lord, we are often. Be gracious to us and share your courage with us. And Father God, open the eyes of our hearts that we may see Jesus even now crowned with glory and honor. We ask for this in his holy name. Amen.